Fast Asleep with Gina Marie. Hi, I'm Gina. Uh, uh, Marie's busy right now. Thank you so very much for being here. Well, we think we have our background music problem from last week worked out. Yeah, it was a little loud in one section. Sorry about that. But we think we solved it and we appreciate your patience. We know we solved it. Um, a quick word to those of you who are new to us. We do classic short stories from extremely talented classic authors. One of which I know is on Twitter and she's very feisty. Um, we bring you real literature yeah, you won't hear me reading from an old 80s phone book. Our episodes will not waste your time. So please, to keep us right here for you, always remember to like, comment, and subscribe to Fast Asleep with Gina Marie wherever possible. Let's get to this week, shall we? Question. Can a person who famously created the buoyant, very social Holly Golightly from Breakfast at Tiffany's, and the very brutal Killers from In Cold Blood. Could that person possibly create the earnest and endearing characters needed for a soft, sweet, sentimental Southern stories? What's your answer? Well, mine is yes. I think Truman Capote could do anything at any age. The two stories from today's episode lets us take a look at the abilities of a 20-something Capote, maybe even late teens. He was still a budding writer then. He was still honing his craft, and we may get one or two more adjectives than we actually need. <laughs> but his imagination, even then, was limitless. He conjured up these riveting scenes, and he leaves us genuinely concerned about his characters. And is this Fast Asleep's first Truman Capote episode? Oh, heck no! But you already knew that, didn't you? You only have to go back to episode 232 for another one. One with a shocking beginning, too. And you'll find others on Fast Asleep. There's a lot to learn about Truman Capote, and you can do it if you want to scroll back. Well, let's get into a nice southern mood. If you can, curl up in Grandma's old patchwork quilt. Tuck in, everybody, for Truman Capote's Parting of the Ways. But first, let's hear his swamp terror. Jep, you just ain't got the sense you was born with. If you gonna go on in these woods, 
looking for that convict. The boy who spoke was small with a nut brown face covered with freckles. He looked eagerly at his companion. Listen here, Jep said. I know very well what I'm doing and I don't need none of your advice and none of your sassy mouth. Well, I do believe you is crazy. What's your ma say if she was to know you was out here in these spooky old woods looking for some old convict? Lemmy, I'm not asking for none of your mouth, and I sure ain't asking for you to be tagging along here with me. Now, you can go on back. Pete and I will go on, and we'll find that old buzzard. And then we two, just us two, will go down and tell those searching parties where he be. Won't we, Pete, old boy? He patted a brown and tan dog trotting along by his side. They walked on a little farther in silence. The boy called Lemmy was undecided what to do. The woods were so dark and so quiet. Occasionally a bird would flutter or sing in the trees and when their path ran near the stream they could hear it moving swiftly along the rocks and tiny waterfalls. Yes, indeed, it was too quiet. Lemmy hated the thought of walking back to the edge of the woods alone. But he hated the idea of going on with Jeb. Even worse. Well, Jeb, he said, Finally, I guess I'll just mosey on back. I'm sure not going on into this place any farther. Not with all these trees and bushes. Every place that old convict could hide behind and jump on you and kill you deader than an old doorknob. Ah, go on back, you big sissy. I hope he gets you while you is going back through the old woods by yourself. Well, so long. I guess I'll be seeing you in school tomorrow. Maybe. So long. Jep could hear Lemmy running back through the underbrush, his feet scurrying like a scared rabbit. That's what he is, Jep thought. Just a scared rabbit. Ugh. What a baby Lemmy is. We never should have brought him along with us, should we have, Pete? He demanded the last, vocally. And the old brown and tan dog, perhaps frightened by the silence being too suddenly interrupted, let out a quick, scared little bark. They walked on in silence. Every now and then, Jep would stop and stand, listening attentively into the forest. But he heard not the slightest sound to indicate a presence trespassing here other than his own. Sometimes they would come to a cleared place carpeted with soft green moss and shaded by big magnolia trees covered with large white 
blossoms, smelling of death. Mm, I guess maybe I should have listened to Lemmy. It sure enough is spooky down in here. He stared up into the tops of the trees. Every now and then, seeing patches of blue. It was so dark here in this part of the woods, almost like night. Suddenly, he heard a whirring sound. Almost in that second, he recognized it. He stood paralyzed with fear. And then Pete let out a short, horrible little yelp. It broke the spell. He turned around, and there was a big rattlesnake poised to strike a second time. Jep jumped as far as he could, tripped, and fell flat on his face. Oh, God, this was the end. He forced his eyes to look around, expecting to see the snake whirling through the air at him. But when his eyes finally came into focus, nothing was there. Then he saw the tip of a tail and a long cord of singing buttons crawling into the undergrowth. For several minutes, he couldn't move. He was so dazed by shock, and his body was numb with terror. Finally, he raised up on his elbow and looked for Pete. But Pete wasn't anywhere in sight. He jumped up and began to search frantically for the dog. And when he found him, Pete had rolled down a red gully and was lying dead at the bottom, all stiff and swollen. Jep didn't cry. He was too frightened for that. Now, what would he do? He didn't know where he was. He began to run and then to tear madly through the forest, but he couldn't find the path. Ah, oh, what was the use? He was lost. And then he remembered the stream. But that was useless. It ran through the swamp, and in parts it was too deep to wade. And in the summer, it was sure to be infested with moccasins. Water moccasins. Same as cottonmouth. Both very poisonous snakes. Darkness was coming on and the trees began to throw grotesque shadows about him. Aw, how does that old convict stand it in here? He thought. Oh my God, the convict! I forgot all about him. I've got to get out of this place! He ran on and on. Finally, he came to one of the cleared spots. The moon was shining right in the center, it looked like a cathedral. Maybe if I climb a tree, he thought, I can see the field and figure out a way to get there. He looked around for the tallest of the trees, 
Oh, it was a straight, slick sycamore with no branches near the bottom, but he was a good climber. Maybe he could make it. He clasped the trunk of the tree with his strong little legs and began to pull himself upward inch by inch. He would climb two feet and slip down one. He kept his head strained back, looking up at the nearest branch he could clasp. When he reached it, he grabbed it and let his legs dangle free from the tree trunk. Oh, for a minute he thought he was gonna fall, dangling there in space. And then he swung his leg over the next limb and sat astraddle it, panting for breath. After a while, he continued on up, climbing limb after limb, and the ground got farther and farther away. And when he reached the top, he stuck his head up over the treetop and looked around. But he could see nothing except trees, trees everywhere. He descended to the broadest and the strongest of the tree limbs. He felt safe up here with the ground so far away. Up here, no one could see him. He would have to spend the night in the tree. If only he could stay awake and not fall asleep. Oh, but he was so tired that everything seemed to be whirling around and around. He shut his eyes for a minute and almost lost his balance. He came out of his trance with a start and slapped his cheeks. It was so quiet. He couldn't even hear the crickets, nor the bullfrogs' nightly serenade. No, everything was quiet and frightening and mysterious. What was that? He jumped with a start. He heard voices and they were coming close. They were almost upon him. He looked down to the earth and he could see two figures moving in the underbrush. They were coming towards the clearing. Oh, oh, thank God. It must be some of the searchers. But then he heard one of the voices, tiny and frightened, scream. Stop, please, please let me go. I wanna go home. Where had Jeb heard that voice before? Oh, of course, it was Lemmy's voice. But what was Lemmy doing way down here in these woods? He'd gone home. Who had him? All these thoughts ran through Jeb's mind. And then suddenly the realization of what was happening dawned on him. The escaped convict had Lemmy, a voice deep and threatening, split the air. Shut up, you brat! He could hear Lemmy's scared sobbing. Their voices were quite clear now. They were almost directly under the tree. Jep held his breath with fear. He could hear his heart pound, and he could feel the ache of his stomach's knotted muscles. 
Sit down here, kid, the convict commanded, and stop that damn crying. Jeb could see that Lemmy fell helplessly to the ground and rolled over on the soft moss, trying desperately to stifle his sobs. The convict was still standing. He was big and bulged with muscles. Jeb could not see his hair. It was covered with a massive straw hat, the kind the convicts wear when they're working on the chain gang. Now, you gotta tell me, kid, he demanded of Lemmy by shoving him. How many people are there out looking for me? Lemmy didn't say a thing. Answer me! I don't know, Lemmy answered faintly. All right, okay, tell me. What parts of the woods have they already covered? I don't know. Ah, damn you. The convict slapped Lemmy across the cheek, and Lemmy broke into renewed hysterics. Oh, no, no, this can't be happening to me, Jeb thought. It's all a dream, a nightmare. I'll wake up and find out that it ain't so. He shut his eyes and opened them in a physical attempt to prove that it was all just a nightmare. But there they were, the convict and Lemmy, and here he was, perched in the tree, scared even to breathe. If only he had something heavy, he could drop it on top of the convict's head and knock him cold. But he didn't have anything. He stopped his thoughts in mid-passage, for the convict was speaking again. Come on, kid. We can't stay here all night. The moon's gonna come out, too. Oh, it must be gonna rain. He scanned the sky through the treetops. Jeb's blood froze with terror. It seemed as if he was looking right at him. He was looking right at the branch he was sitting on. Any minute he would see him. Jep closed his eyes. The seconds pounded past like hours. When he finally got up the courage to look again, he saw that the convict was trying to pick Lemmy up off the ground. He hadn't seen him. Oh, thank God. The convict said, Come on, kid, before I cuff you a good one. He was holding Lemmy halfway up like a sack of potatoes, and then suddenly he dropped him. Shut up, that crying! He screamed at him. So electrifying was the tone of his voice that Lemmy stopped, dead still. Something was the matter. The convict was standing by the tree, listening attentively into the forest. And then Jep heard it too. Something was coming through the undergrowth. He heard twigs snapping and bushes being scraped past. From where he was sitting, he could see what it was. There were ten men closing in a circle around the clearing. But the convict could only hear the noise. He wasn't sure what it was. He became panicky. Lemmy yelled, Here we are! Here! We're over here! For 
the convict had grabbed him. He was furtively pressing Lemmy's face into the ground. The little body was squirming and kicking and... Then, all of a sudden, it went limp and lay very still. Jep saw the convict take his hand off the back of the boy's head. Something was the matter with Lemmy. Then Jep saw it in a flash. It was like something he just knew. Lemmy was dead. The convict had smothered him to death. The men were no longer creeping in. They broke through the underbrush furiously. The convict saw he was trapped. He backed up against the trunk of Jep's tree and began to whine. And then it was all over. Jep yelled, and the men held their arms to catch him. He jumped and landed, unharmed, in the arms of one of the men. The convict was handcuffed and crying. A damn kid. It was all his fault. Jep looked over at Lemmy. One of the men was bending over him. Jep heard him turn to a man by his side and say, Yeah, he's dead all right. It was then that Jeb began to laugh. He laughed hysterically and hot, salty tears ran down his cheeks. We'll be right back. And now, our second story on Fast Asleep with Gina Marie. Stay tucked in, everybody for Truman Capote's Parting of the Way. from the distant town were beginning to flash on. Up the hot and dusty road leading from the town came two figures. One, a large and powerful man. The other, young and delicate. Jake's flaming red hair framed his head. His eyebrows looked like horns. 
his muscles bulged and were threatening. His overalls were faded and ragged, and his toes stuck out through pieces of shoes. He turned to the young boy walking beside him and said, Ah, guess this is just about time to make camp for tonight. Here, kid, take this bundle, lay it over there, and get some wood and make it snappy, too. I want to make the vittles before it's all dark. We can't have anybody seeing us. Go on, hurry up. Tim obeyed the orders and set about gathering the wood. His thin shoulders drooped from the strain, and his gaunt features stood out with protruding bones. His eyes were weak, but sympathetic. His rosebud mouth puckered slightly as he went about his labor. Neatly, he piled the wood, while Jake cut strips of bacon and put them in a grease-coated pan. Then, when the wood was ready to be fired, he searched through his overalls for a match. Damn it! Where did I put those matches? Where are they? You ain't got them, have you, kid? Nuts, I... I didn't think so. Oh, here they are. He drew a paper of matches from a pocket, lit one, and protected the tiny flame with his rough hands. Tim put the pan with the bacon over the small fire that was rapidly catching. The bacon remained still for a minute or so, and then a tiny crackling sound started, and the bacon was frying. A very rancid odor came from the meat. Tim's sick face turned sicker from the fumes. Oh, gee, Jake. I don't know whether I can eat any of this junk or not. You know, it doesn't look right to me. I think it's rancid. You'll eat it or nothing if you weren't so stingy with that piece of change you got. We could have got us something decent to eat. Kid, you got a whole ten bucks, and it doesn't take that much to get home on. Yes, it does. I got it all figured out. The train cab fare, it's going to cost me five bucks. And I want to get a new suit for about three bucks, and then I want to get Ma something pretty for about a dollar or so, and I figure my food will cost a buck. I want to get looking decent. Ma and them, they they don't know. I've been bumming around the country for the last two years. They think I'm a traveling salesman. That's what I wrote them. They think I'm just coming home now to stay a while before I start out on a little trip somewheres. Well, I ought to take that money off you. I'm mighty hungry. I might take that piece of change. Old Tim stood up, defiant. His weak, frail body was a joke compared to the bulging muscles of Jake. Jake looked at him and laughed. He leaned back against a tree and roared. (laughs) Ain't you a pretty something? You know, I just twist that mess of bones you call yourself. I, 
I'd just break every bone in your body. Only, you know, you've been pretty good for me, stealing stuff for me and the likes of that, so I'll let you keep your pin money. And he laughed again. Tim looked at him suspiciously and sat back down on a rock. Jake took two tin plates from a sack, put three strips of the rancid bacon on his plate and one on Tim's. Tim looked at him. Where's my other piece? There were four strips. You're supposed to get two and me two. Where's my other piece? He demanded. Jake looked at him. I thought you said that you didn't want any of this rancid meat. Putting his hands on his hips, he said the last eight words in a high, sarcastic, feminine voice. Tim remembered he had said that, but he was hungry, hungry and cold. I don't care. I want my other piece. I'm hungry. I could eat just about anything. Come on, Jake. Give me my other piece. Jake laughed and stuck all the three pieces in his mouth. Not another word was spoken. Tim went sulkily over in a corner, and reaching out from where he was sitting, he gathered pine twigs, neatly laying them along the ground. Finally, when this job was finished, he could stand the strained silence no longer. I'm sorry, Jake. You know how it is. I'm excited about getting home and everything. I'm really very hungry, too. But gosh, I guess all there is to do is to tighten my belt. The hell it is. You could take some of that jack you got and go get us a decent meal. I know what you're thinking. Why don't we steal some food? But hell... You don't catch me stealing anything in this burg. I heard from buddies that this place, he pointed a finger toward the lights that indicated a town, is one of the toughest little burgs this side of nowhere. They watch bums like eagles. I guess you're right. But you understand. I just ain't gonna take any chances on losing none of this dough. It's got to last me, because it's all I got and all I'm liable to get in the next few years. I wouldn't disappoint Ma for anything in this world. Morning came gloriously. The large orange disc, known as the sun, came up like a messenger from heaven over the distant horizon. Tim had awakened just in time to see the sunrise. He shook Jake, who jumped up, demanding, What do you want? Oh, it's time to get up. Hell, how I hate to get up. And then he let out a mighty yawn and stretched his powerful muscles as far as they would go. This is... Sure going to be one hot day, Jake. I sure am glad 
I ain't gonna have to walk. Well, that is, only as far back into that town as the railroad station is. Yeah, kid. Think of me. I ain't got any place to go, but I'm going there just walking in the hot sun. I wish it would always be like early spring. Not too hot, not too cold. I sweat to death in summer and freeze in winter. It's a heck of a climate. I think I'd like to go to Florida in the winter, but there ain't no good pickings there anymore. He walked over and started to take out the frying utensils again. He reached into the pack and brought out a bucket. Here, kid, go up there to that farmhouse, about a quarter of a mile up the road. Get some water. Tim took the bucket and started up the road. Hey, kid, ain't you gonna take your jacket? Ain't you afraid I'll steal your dough? Uh, nope. I guess I can trust you. But down deep in his heart, he knew that he couldn't. The only reason he hadn't turned back was because he didn't want Jake to know that he didn't trust him. The chances were Jake knew it anyway. Up the road he trudged. It was not paved, but even in the early morning, the dust still stuck. The white house was just a little bit farther. As he reached the gate, he saw the owner coming out of the cow shed with a pail in his hand. Hey, mister, can I please have this bucket filled with some water? I guess so. There's the pump. He pointed a dirty finger toward a pump in the yard. Tim went in. He grasped the pump handle and pushed it up down. Suddenly, the water came spilling out in a cold stream. He reached down and stuck his mouth to the spot, the spout, and let cold liquid run in and over his mouth. Now, after filling the bucket, he started back down the road. He broke his way through the brush and came back into the clearing. Jake was bending over the bag. Damn! There just ain't nothing left to eat. I thought at least there were a couple of slices of that bacon left. Ah, that's all right. When I get to town, I can get me a whole meal. And maybe I'll buy you a cup of coffee. And a bun. Oh, gee, but you're generous. Jake looked at him disgustedly. Tim picked up his jacket and reached in the pocket. He brought out a worn leather wallet and unfastened the catch. I'm about to produce the dough that's going to take me home. He repeated the words several times, caressing it each time. He reached into the wallet. He brought out his hand. Empty. An expression of horror and unbelief overcame him. Wildly, he tore the wallet apart and then dashed about looking through the pine needles, 
furiously. He ran around like a trapped animal. And then he saw Jake. His small, thin frame shook with fury. Wildly, he turned on him. Give me back my money, you thief, liar. You stole it from me. I'll kill you if you don't give it back. Give it back. I'll kill you. You promised you wouldn't take it. Thief, liar, cheat. Give it to me or I'll kill you. Jake looked at him, astounded, and said, Why, Tim, kid, I ain't got it. Maybe you lost it. Maybe it's still in those pine needles. Come on, we'll find it. No, it's not there. I've looked. You stole it. There just ain't anybody else who could have. You did it. Where did you put it? You give it back. You've got to give it back. I swear. I haven't got it. I swear it by all the principles I got. You ain't got no principles. Jake, you look me in the eyes and you say you hope you get killed if you ain't got my money. Jake turned around. His red hair seemed even redder in the bright morning light. His eyebrows more like thorns. His unshaven chin jutted out and his yellow teeth showed at the far end of his upturned and twisted mouth. I swear that I ain't got your ten bucks. If I ain't telling the truth, I hopes that the next time I rides the rail, I gets killed. Okay, Jake. I believe you. Only, where could my money be? You know I ain't got it on me. You ain't got it? Where is it? You ain't searched the camp yet. Look all round. It must be here somewheres. Come on, I'll help you look. It couldn't have walked off. Tim ran nervously about, repeating, What if I don't find it? I can't go home. I can't go home looking like this. Jake went about the search only half-heartedly, his big body bending and looking in the pine needles, in the sack. Tim took off his clothes and stood naked in the middle of the camp, tearing out the seams in his overalls, searching for his money. Near tears, he sat down on a log. We might as well give it up. It ain't here. It ain't nowheres. I can't go home. And I want to go home. Uh, what will Ma say? Please, Jake. Jake, have you got it? Damn you! For the last time, no. The next time you ask me that, I'm a-gonna knock hell out of you. Okay. Okay, Jake. I guess I'll, I'll just have to bum around with you some more till I can 
get me enough money again to go on home. I can write Ma a card and say that they sent me off on a trip already, and I can come see her later. I don't know. I sure ain't going to have you bumming round with me anymore. I'm tired of kids like you. You'll have to go your own way and find your own pickings. Jake mused to himself. I want the kid to come with me, but I shouldn't. Maybe if I leave him alone, he'll get wise, go home and make something of himself. That's what he ought to do. Go on home and tell the truth. They both sat down on a log. Finally, Jake said, Kid, if you are going, you better get started. Come on, get up. It's about seven already and you got to get started. Tim picked up his knapsack and they walked out to the road together. Jake's big, powerful figure looked fatherly beside Tim. It seemed as if he might be protecting a small child. They reached the road and turned to face each other to say goodbye. Jake looked into Tim's clear, watery blue eyes. Well, so long, kid. Let's shake hands and part friends. Tim extended his tiny hand. Jake wrapped his paw over Tim's. He gave him a hearty shake. The kid allowed his hand to be moved limply. Jake let go. The kid felt something in his hand. He opened it, and there lay the $10 bill. Jake was hurrying away, and Tim started after him. Perhaps it was just the bright sunlight reflecting on his eyes. And then again, perhaps it really was tears. That's it for Mr. Capote today. Thank you for listening. Our introduction information came from the foreword for The Early Stories of Truman Capote by Hilton Alves. Our music is Gruamac by the very talented Charlie Gray and Joseph Peach. Also, some of the background music this week is from Hits Lab. You can always reach me at Fast Asleep with Gina Marie 44 at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, even TikTok. And please remember to like, comment, 
or subscribe wherever you can. Thank you. Keyword, convict. Good night. Thank you.